We have the uh, awesome opportunity to kick off a brand new study today. And so if you got a Bible with you, open to the New Testament, and we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. So I've been telling you, I think, for some time that we're going to jump into this book and uh, study it together. It's going to be an incredible experience for all of us to have. Anytime we head into a new book, it's an incredible opportunity. And so I'm looking forward to it. I've been buying a lot of commentaries. I've been doing a lot of reading. I've been doing a lot of prep. Too much prep, probably, uh, but I've been just getting ready to, uh, to dive into this book with you. And so today, that's what we're doing. We're kicking into the book of Acts. And I'm just going to kind of title this particular message as we introduce the book as Acts, an incredible journey. That's what we're going to go on. We're going to go on together this incredible journey throughout the book of Acts. And so if you're there, Acts chapter 1, let me just read to you the first five verses just to kind of get us into the book a little bit. And then we're going to spend a little time just kind of introducing and overviewing this entire book here together. Here's what we read. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Father, we're grateful to just dive into the book of Acts this morning. We're so encouraged and a little bit scared maybe to jump into a book that will take us beyond the Gospels, toward the epistles, in such a way that would rattle our understanding of the early church. I pray, God, that we would be staunchly biblical and I pray that we would also be spirit-filled as we desire for you to teach us all that you want us to know in this incredible book. God, I pray for us as a church that throughout this journey together, that we would be refined in our theology, that we would be refocused in our witness for the world, and that we would be revived in our passion for the glory of God in all things. And so we're grateful today to be able to get started in this book. Would you be with us today? Open our minds, our hearts, help us to be faithful students and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, again, today we are having that incredible privilege of embarking on a brand new study in the book of Acts. And I just wanted you to know that introducing a new book to a congregation can sometimes be a little intimidating because it is usually different than a typical sermon. There's a ton of information that you try to kind of put out there in a 45, 50-minute time frame, and that can be a little bit different than a normal Sunday. And this morning, I just want to Go ahead and caution you that you may feel like you're trying to drink water from a fire hose. And so my encouragement to you is not to try to swallow everything, but just make sure you get a few good, refreshing gulps, all right? You may feel like this morning that I'm trying to make you to run a marathon. You may not be a marathon runner. That's okay. Let me, let me encourage you this morning. I just want you to take a walk with me as we look at the botanical gardens of Acts. Today, you may feel like you have to ride every single ride at Disneyland and at California Adventure on the same day. And let me just encourage you, you don't have to. I'm going to give you a season pass 
to both of those parks when they open again. I'm just kidding. I'm giving you a season pass to the book of Acts so that you can come at it again and again with deeper understanding, with greater passion and excitement all throughout our study in this book together. So it's going to take some time for us to build and to work together as we conquer what God wants us to understand and apply from this book of Acts. I want to encourage you this morning as we look at this introduction, you don't have to do every exercise in the gym. Somebody say, praise God. Somebody say, I haven't been to the gym in a year. All right. So you don't have to do every exercise in the gym. You don't even have to eat everything I put on your plate. All the kids are like, I heard that, right? So you don't have to take a pop quiz about the book of Acts. You just have to listen and take in what you can in a way that will help you and encourage you to love Jesus more and to serve him more faithfully. Have you ever been introduced to a new person who you didn't know at all? Before you were introduced, you were not aware of that person's story. And then when you got to know them, you were able to relate to them as you got to know them better and better. Maybe you were even uh, encouraged and blessed by them and hopefully impacted by their life and testimony. That happens to me every time I meet a a new believer. I'm just encouraged about their testimony, their love for Christ, and I'm happy to make their acquaintance and I want to get to know them better. Well, today, I'm going to introduce you to a new friend, and that new friend is the book of Acts. And I'm just saying, some of you have known a lot about Acts, and you're a little bit aware that Acts is there somewhere in the Bible, but you may have never done a deep dive to learn how to relate to the truths in Acts in such a way that will help you today to live a life filled with power and with courage and with purity in your life. And I I believe that this book of Acts will encourage you to a great degree. And I pray that studying the book of Acts will help you love Jesus more. I pray that studying the book of Acts will help you understand the importance and the beauty of the church like never before. I, I pray that studying the book of Acts will help you be filled with power so that you can be a better witness for Christ than ever before. And so are you ready to join me on this incredible journey? I'm sorry. Are you ready to join me on this incredible journey in the book of Acts? Let's go. We're about to jump in. And this morning, we're simply going to cover three headings as I introduce to you this wonderful book. All right. You'll see it there if you're taking notes in your outline. Basically, I'm just going to talk to you this morning about the historical introduction of Acts, the historical purpose of Acts, and then the historical outline of Acts. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Big picture, big overview. First, we'll start off with the historical introduction of Acts. And I just want to warn you, as I have been, we are about to get into some heady material. When you talk about introducing a new book of the Bible, there's a lot of material and things that you need to know, like the author and the date the book was written and the historical background about what was going on at that time. And and why is it so important to know all of those things? Well, if you're really going to get to know what God wants you to know in the book of Acts, this kind of introduction material is where it all starts. You cannot jump into a meaningful relationship with someone if you don't know anything about their name or if you don't know anything about their age or their weight. All right, I'm just kidding. You don't have to know their age or weight or if they color their hair, all right? You don't have to know that. But you do need to know certain things about them in a way that you can feel like, I understand that book 
because it's a book I've spent time getting to know. That's what we're trying to do this morning. And so in the same way, I'm going to ask you to help bear with me as we take some time to understand who's the author, what's the date that it's written, and what's some history from this book that will help us uh, make deeper inroads in our understanding. So first, we're going to look at the authorship. The authorship. The book of Acts was written by Luke. Although Luke's name is not given up front in the book, we can build a case that Luke wrote this book from verse 1. You're already there, Acts 1.1. It says this, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Let me just pause right there. We already know one thing about the author of Acts, and that is he wrote another book. All right, see, it's not that hard to study the book of Acts. You already know one thing about this author, though his name is not given. You know he's already written a first book, and so we're seeing that Acts is this second book. And this isn't his first book. There's another book that's already been written. A second observation that we can make is that Luke is writing to this person named Theophilus. Now, Theophilus comes from two Greek words, as you might imagine, if you kind of look at the name a little bit, theos, which is the word for God, where we get the word theology from, our study of God, and then the word philia, and philia is the word love, phileo, that brotherly type of love. So the name Theophilus means either lover of God or loved by God, and either way, they're both true. If someone is loved by God, they will be a lover of God. The only way that you can be a lover of God, according to 1 John 1, uh, 4, 19, is we love because he first loved us. And so somehow we know that Theophilus is either a Christian or he's someone that God has loved to such a degree that by reading Luke's account of Acts, that he's going to become into this incredible relationship with God the Father. And so Theophilus was most likely some type of official that Luke is addressing. And we read a little bit more about Theophilus in Luke's first book. Uh, and, and Luke's first book is his gospel. So I'm going to need you to turn there with me because I want to show you a couple of quick parallels. So you're there in Acts 1. Go to your left, if you will, back to the gospel of Luke. And then you start to see how this is how we're building our case for the authorship of Luke because we know he wrote another book and the other book starts off in a similar way that the book of Acts starts, which is Luke 1.1. Let's look at the fact the first four verses says this. Luke writes, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you. Most excellent, there's that name again, Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So what we're seeing here is that in these first few verses in the Gospel of Luke, that Luke has compiled a careful, researched narrative about the things that Jesus did. And people related things that they have seen and heard to Luke. And Luke had also been following these same things for a while. So he decided to write an orderly account of what he had seen and what had happened in order to present this to Theophilus. That's his first book, the book of Luke. Luke. And the fact that Luke said that he wrote an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, shows that Theophilus was most likely some type of dignitary or governor. 
So we can already see here clearly in the introduction of Acts and in the introduction of Luke, this comparison demonstrates that these two books were indeed written by the same author. And so I believe that to be Luke. Now, when there are questions of authorship, because there are questions, people always ask questions, particularly critics, uh, ask questions about, well, how do you know he really uh, wrote Acts? I'm making the case for you so that you can know and put that to to bed in your mind, though I know you probably weren't doubting, but I'm just trying to give you a better, robust theology of understanding here. When people ask that question, the best way to answer the questions that people ask is by giving what we call internal evidence. So you first look within the Bible to see what does the Bible say about who wrote these books before you look at external evidence, which would be what do other people say about it? Okay, so the internal evidence is, number one, what I've just shown you, the comparison between Luke and Acts. And there's other internal evidences that even though Luke's name is not given specifically as the author of Acts, this internal evidence of his authorship is also clear from the pronoun we. In many places in Acts, the author writes with this personal, first-person, plural pronoun, we. And by, we, by using we over and over again, Luke demonstrates that he and Paul had a very close working relationship. It's kind of like if you knew I went on a special trip with my wife, Lisa. Honey, you remember when we used to do that, go on special trips, getting away for the weekend? You know, if, and I was going to come back and tell you a little bit about our trip. I would say, oh, we did this, and we did that, and we did this. And you would know I'm talking about Lisa and I because of the whole greater context. And what I'm saying here is that Luke was one of the main companions with Paul who traveled with him. And throughout the book of Acts, he continues to say, we did this, or we did that, or we experienced that. Luke was a close companion of the apostle Paul. That's a well-known fact. He served, he probably heard already as Luke's, uh, Luke served as Paul's personal physician. Uh, so we know that from all of these we passages scattered throughout the book of Acts, we have more internal proof about Luke's authorship. For example, in Acts 16.10, it says, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia one of the we passages. In Acts 20, verse 5, these went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. So again, Luke referring to him and Paul heading to Troas, us there, he says. In Acts 20, 13, Luke writes, but going ahead to the ship, we set sail. Acts 27, 1, and when it was decided that we should set sail for Italy. Acts 27, 18, again, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began to the next day to jettison the cargo. So all of these experiences that we know about Paul are being recorded by Luke. He was right there, first person, plural. And in these passages, the author uses that first person to testify that he was actually there in person on every one of those instances. Now, one of my favorite commentators, his name is D. Edmund Hebert. He summarizes the significance of these we passages in his commentary when he writes this, quote, References to various companions of Paul in these we sections at once distinguish the author from other of Paul's close companions. Other well-known companions appearing in the Pauline epistles do not fit into the pattern set by these we sections and can be located elsewhere at one time or another. Of the known close companions of Paul, only Titus and Luke are never named in Acts. But no one has ever seriously suggested that Titus was the author of Luke and Acts. 
This leaves only Luke as the probable author, and this is strong supported by the external evidence as well. So again, all D. Edmund Hebert is saying is that there are really no other options from the internal evidence of who wrote the book of Acts. If the gospel of Luke and Acts start the same way, writing to Theophilus, Luke references his former work. We have the we passages in Acts that show that Luke is giving, again, his firsthand perspective. Now, that's all the internal evidence. The external evidence that would point to this would also be the idea that if you looked throughout church history, all of the early church fathers affirmed that Luke wrote not only the gospel account, but that he wrote the book of Acts as well. In fact, in the second century, church fathers Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, and Tertullian all attest to Luke's authorship of Acts. Other church fathers, such as Origen, Eusebius, and Jerome, also affirm Luke's authorship of this book. So if these trusted men, while they were not in the Bible, they're godly men who wrote very accurate historical accounts of the early church, all of them unanimously adopted Luke as the clear author of this book. And if you don't feel like that's enough information for you yet in this seminary class that you're actually getting this morning, I've got more for you, all right? I'm just editing out. I I, I spent a little time in like 20 commentaries just to give you this little humble offering of the book of Acts. So you could just say, thank you, pastor. Thank you for boiling it down for us. That's, that's what I need. I need a little thank you instead of why are you information dumping on us? So remember, it's important to know the name of who wrote so that you can get to know this book in such a way that will bless your heart. So now that we've established that the author is Luke, I just want to mention quickly the date of the book, the date that the book was written. There are two different views about the correct date of Luke's writing of Acts. Some hold to the view that Luke wrote the book of Acts while Paul was still living, most likely at the end of his first imprisonment detailed in the last chapter of Acts, Acts chapter 28. This would have been either in year 60 or 61 AD. Now, that would be my view. Others believe that the book was written 10 to 25 years later, somewhere between the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD and Luke's death, presumed to be about 85 AD. I believe that Luke wrote Acts on the earlier date for the following reasons. You can just listen. To me, this view best, best fits the abrupt ending of Acts. Turn with me, if you will, to the very end of the book. You saw the beginning. You've seen the beginning of Luke. Now I want you to turn with me to Acts 28. That's the last chapter. And you'll notice that the book ends a little bit abruptly. If you've been pacing with Luke throughout his historical account, basically Paul finally gets to Rome. And when he gets to Rome, uh, verse 28 says, therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. We're talking about Paul in prison in Rome, giving a testimony of the gospel. Verse 31, so he's there uh, in prison, welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so what I'm saying is, while that's a, it's just kind of a short, You know, it's kind of like we've been building and we're expecting Paul to appear before Caesar. We're expecting Paul, he's in prison, and we kind of want to know a better, fuller description maybe of the end of the story, but the book stops right there. So the fact that the book kind of stops right there 
is one reason why I'm going with the earlier date. Another reason would be the Roman officials, if you'll notice what we just read in chapter 28, the Roman officials allowed Paul to preach the word of God without hindrance. That doesn't happen after 70 AD. After the fall of Rome, the persecution begins to set in in such a way that John was sent to the Isle of Patmos, as you know, in 95 AD. So the fact that they're letting Paul still do his thing, understand Rome doesn't yet fully understand what the gospel even is. And so the fact that they let Paul continue to teach and preach and people come in is another evidence of why I think it was written on the earlier date. Number three, Luke does not even mention Nero or the persecution that Nero brought upon Christians. So a little bit later, if the book is written in 60 or 61, 65, 66, 67, Nero, this insane uh, you know, person, begins to burn Rome. And he blames it on the Christians. There's all kind of persecution, confusion going on. It's referenced in First, Second Peter, but it's not referenced here in Acts. So it's kind of like, well, if this worldwide event or, you know, seemingly worldwide because of the scope of Rome and the Roman Empire is happening. Why would Luke, this careful historian, not even mention Nero, not mention that type of persecution? That's another reason why I think that he wrote the book earlier before that happened. Number four, Luke never references any of the epistles written by Paul. This suggests that most likely Luke wrote Acts before the collection of Paul's epistles were written and widely circulated in the church. Peter references some of Paul's writings. Other epistles might reference writings, but Luke here in Acts doesn't reference this. So it's another clue that it was written earlier. And then number five, Luke never mentions the rest of Paul's ministry. There is no mention here made of Paul's final verdict. We just know he's in prison. We don't know if he got released. Luke doesn't mention Paul's second imprisonment. He doesn't mention other things about Paul, even though he was with Paul in 2 Timothy 4.11. So in other words, the best reason to explain the omission of all of these important details of the ongoing life and ministry of Paul is that these events had not yet taken place when Luke wrote Acts. Therefore, I believe that Luke wrote Acts on the earlier date of either 60 or 61 AD. Now, before we move on, I want to mention to you three, and this is in your notes, incredible observations of everything we've just looked at. If you're sitting here this morning and you're like, I'm not really a Bible student. I'm not into what you're saying. Why does it all matter? I got some application for you. You ready? Number one, Luke. This is, these are other important observations about Luke. You ready? Number one, Luke was not one of the 12 apostles. Now, that may be startling to you a little bit. You may have just assumed that Luke was an apostle since he wrote a gospel and the book of Acts, which is by far the most informative book describing how the church began. But if you go back and look at the passages where Jesus calls his disciples to follow him, Matthew 4, 18 through 22, Mark 3, 16 through 20, Luke 5, 1 through 11, John 1, 35 through 51. If you go back and look at those lists of Jesus calling his apostles to himself of those original 12, Luke's name is not mentioned. But Luke's name is not the only Bible author not mentioned. Mark is not mentioned as well, which means two of the four Gospels were not written by apostles. Just making sure you understand. It's not just Bible trivia. There's something important, I think, that that you can take from observing these facts. Mark is thought to have largely written from the perspective of Peter, 
And Luke was thought to have largely written from the perspective of Paul when they record some of their writings. So it's an interesting fact just to know that while we're learning a little bit about Luke, you need to know and make sure you understand he was not one of the 12 apostles. Number two, Luke was not a Jew. Interesting, in addition to Luke not being a disciple, you must know that Luke also was not a Jew. And one text that points that out is Colossians 4.11, where Paul distinguishes between Luke and his other colleagues who were of the circumcision. So you have Luke being distinguished over here, other colleagues that were of the circumcision, meaning they were Jews. And so therefore, Luke is the only New Testament writer clearly identifiable as a non-Jew. So number one, Luke was not an apostle. Number two, Luke was not a Jew. And number three, Luke wrote most of the New Testament. Now you may say, Adam, what? How can that be? This non-disciple, non-Jew wrote most of the New Testament. How is that even possible? You're telling me he only wrote two books. Didn't Paul write a lot more? Paul has been proven to have written at least 13 epistles. So Adam, you got to go back to math school, man. Two, 13, you are off. Well, the answer would be simple. If you take the volume of words written in the gospel of Luke and in the book of Acts, that volume outweighs Paul's 13 epistles. So Luke wrote most of the New Testament. Paul comes in second, John comes in third with the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. So what are some takeaways from our introduction to this book of Acts so forth? So, so we've talked a lot about the author. Let me give you the application. You ready? Number one, from all that we've looked at so far, history matters. It matters that you understand that the Bible is a historical book. It is well documented. And Luke himself said, as we saw in Luke 1, 3 through 4, it seemed good to me also, having followed all the things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that have been taught. And so we know that all scriptures inspired by God and breathed out and is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, right? It's written by God, but that doesn't mean that some authors didn't work hard to document as well for us all that they had seen and heard. And Luke was one of those authors. He was a scholar. He worked hard. He took other literary works and brought them together as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He did his homework. He compiled much. He studied much. And he wrote in great detail an accurate account of exactly what happened. And so here's what I'm trying to say to you. Just like history matters, your life and your testimony matters to God. God is sovereign over your life. He ordains all the details of your life, but you're still called to work hard. You're called to work hard to be a diligent follower of Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? History matters. The Holy Spirit wrote the book through Luke, but Luke worked hard. You matter. Your testimony matters. God's going to write his work through you, but you better work hard as well to represent him faithfully. Another important lesson I want to give to you, number two, we always look first within the Bible, reflecting on the internal evidence versus the external evidence. We always look first within the Bible and then 
outside the Bible for proof. Internal evidence is always most important and primary because it's what God said. You understand me? When you're thinking about, well, what does the Bible say? Don't first run out and say, well, what do these scholars say? What do church historians say? Should you do that? Yes, but that comes second. Your first attempt should be, what does God say? In his word, what clues are there in the scripture that would help me be a faithful, dedicated Bible student to look at God's word? Because if God said it, that settles it. This doesn't mean that the external uh, information is useless and unhelpful. It just means that you better look first into the word of God before you look into the findings of men. And what if we can't find any physical evidence? What if we can't find any historical evidence? What is that? Does that mean that the Bible isn't true? I would say far be it from you to take that assumption. If you want the truth, you must look at the greatest source of authority on earth. And the greatest source of authority on earth is God's word. And if you began to chase other things, then you're forgetting that you must first come to the inspired infallible, inerrant, all-sufficient word of God. Otherwise, you are depending primarily on secular historians, scientists, and philosophers who think that the universe began with a big bang, that life began on the back of crystals, and that you came from a monkey. That's what you get when you get outside the Bible. I'm encouraging you, you stay in the Bible. You stay in God's word. You read God's word. It is living and active and you need it every moment of every day. God's word matters. Stay in God's word, right? The third application or lesson we can learn just from this introduction material, number three, you are to fulfill the ministry that God gave you. Now think about it for a minute. Luke was not picked as one of the 12 apostles. Luke did not have the heritage of being a Jew. Luke maybe felt like he was on the outside looking in. Luke was a doctor who happened to take his God-given talent and use it for God's glory. And even though early, early on when he didn't get picked as a disciple, and when Luke was thinking, I'm not even a Jew, all of a sudden God elevates him to this place of authorship, to where he would record the book of Luke and the book of Acts, God's narrative of the early church. He chose to use Luke. And Luke might have thought, man, I've already kind of missed the boat. Now, I don't know that Luke thought that, but I'm just trying to put myself in his shoes that he was around Jesus. He was there with the other apostles. He was part of those disciples that were being made. He just wasn't one of the original 12. And I think there's something that we can learn from that this morning by way of application. Maybe you didn't get the job you applied for. Maybe you were not selected to be the ministry leader of the ministry you've been involved in. Maybe you have not asked, you've not been asked to be an elder or a deacon or a small group leader. Does that mean that you can't serve the living God? By no means. You you take what God has given you and you be faithful to do your work for the Lord every single day. You may be working a nine to five job making minimum wage. You may have flunked out of college the first go around. Let's see a show of hands, please. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right. So you you may feel like your business is failing. You, You may not have graduated from the master's university with a minor in Bible. You may have never even read through the entire Bible, and so you may feel like you need to take a second seat to those first-class Christians. Let me remind you, you are loved by God. 
and you are to be a lover of God. You are like Theophilus in that way, which means it's time for you to rise up and to be faithful in the ministry God's called you to, and you don't know what he's going to have you do. You may think, oh, I didn't get picked as a disciple. I don't have anything to do. And Luke could have just sat on his haunches. But God, in his sovereignty, kept calling Luke to himself, kept revealing to Luke how to compile these books and through the Holy Spirit, then write his account in Acts, and then write uh, before that his account in, in, uh, in the Gospel of Luke. I just think it's incredible. I think it's incredible that God used Luke to write most of the New Testament. So we can be encouraged today that while you may not be able to explain to others if you are a continuationist or a cessationist, a covenantalist or a dispensationalist, you may not be able to explain the 70 weeks of Daniel, but if you are a bona fide, blood-bought son or daughter of the king, then you have work to do. And your job is to let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your job is to love each other in such a way that people will know that you are disciples of Christ by your love. Your job is to take hold of the solid food of God's word that you may have your powers of discernment trained by constant practice so that you can distinguish good from evil. And by the way, that's what Luke did. He constantly followed God and God gave him more and more to do. By the way, Bible scholars have noted that Luke had an outstanding command of the Greek language. His vocabulary is extensive and rich and his styles at times approach that of classical Greek. He was familiar with sailing and had a special love for recording geographical details. All of this would indicate that Luke as well was an educated, observant, and careful writer. Starting to like Luke a little bit more? I hope you do. You're starting to see a little similarities? You're not an apostle. You're not a Jew. But God's going to use you in amazing ways as you submit your heart, your life, the gifts he's given you for his glory. How's that for an introduction of Acts? We're still going, all right? You're with me? We're still going. Number two, second observation I want to give you. These next two points will be a little shorter, but what is the historical purpose of Acts? We've kind of gotten a lot of of, uh, background information. What's the real purpose for which the book was written? I would say to you here that the book of Acts may have originally had no title. There are Greek manuscripts that do give the title, simply the word Acts. There are other Greek manuscripts that add the Acts of the Apostles. The word Acts in the original in the Greek is the word praxeus, which is often used to describe the achievements of great men. Acts certainly features the incredible boldness of Peter and the thorough ministry of Paul, but as always, great men and women are not the ultimate heroes of the Bible. God is, and God the Holy Spirit takes center stage in the book of Acts as the Holy Spirit is mentioned more than 50 times in this book. And so many of the commentaries suggest that we should think of the title of the book instead of just being Acts or Acts of the Apostles. Maybe we should think of it as something that would be like the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. I like that. The act of the Holy Spirit through the apostles, the sovereign, superabundant, and all-satisfying work of the Holy Spirit was far more significant than the work of any man. And as one commentator said, quote, it was the Spirit's directing, 
controlling and empowering ministry that strengthened the church and caused it to grow in numbers, spiritual power, and influence, close quote. So I believe that Acts explains the immediate response to and the carrying out of the Great Commission. If you were to say, hey, Adam, what's the purpose of Acts? I would answer it simply. It is a response to the Great Commission. If the Great Commission of Matthew 28, 18 through 20, when Jesus said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, go therefore make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That's an incredible commission that the Lord Jesus gave. Acts shows how his disciples and other followers of Christ said, we're going to take that seriously. What Jesus told us to do, we're going to get busy doing in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I would say the primary purpose of Acts, therefore, was to show how the Great Commission was carried out in the early church to reach the world for Christ. Acts is the narrative of the early church. I mean, you can imagine going, uh, can you imagine, I should say, going from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to Romans or to First and Second Corinthians or to Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians for that? Can you imagine if you just went straight from there to these deeper doctrinal epistles? You'd be like, wait a second, what happened? How did we get from all the disciples abandoning Jesus when the, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? How did we go from all these disciples too scared to be at the foot of the cross, except for John. How, how do you go from these guys seeming to, to deny Christ at the end and kind of start to take a downward turn like the stock market did this week? All right. How do we, how do we do, how do, how do we get from there to all of a sudden their stock is way up? How do, how do you get there? Well, that's what Acts is about. Acts is about these guys get filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that emboldens them and empowers them and enables them to take the gospel not only from Jerusalem, but to take it to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's what Acts is all about. It's an incredible story of how the early church grew and expanded. Some of the main purposes of Acts are as follows. This is in your outline. A, Acts emphasizes that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. You see this theme throughout the book of Acts. Jesus is the Messiah. Peter preached there on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2.36 and following, let the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Jesus came. He claimed to be the son of God, the son of man, the Messiah, the apostles continued that teaching throughout, the, uh, the, uh, their, uh, the, throughout the, the book of Acts. It's recorded for us. They're teaching from Peter and Paul, and they keep saying the same thing. Jesus was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. He was the righteous one. This man, Jesus, whom you killed, he was both Lord and Christ. And in Acts 2.37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's a title, Messiah. Jesus, Messiah. 
repent and believe and be baptized in the name of Jesus Messiah for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we're saying here that Acts emphasizes that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Stephen preached the same thing in Acts 7 as he was being martyred in Acts 7.52. Stephen says that the stiff-necked Jews killed the righteous one which is another clear reference to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul preached that Christ uh, was the Messiah as well. Acts 18 verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So just make sure you get that in your head. That's still a big theme. Some of the Jews are like, we don't think Jesus was the Messiah. The book of Acts is saying, no, Jesus was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. He was the Messiah prophesied of old. He was the prophet, priest, and king. This Jesus is the man. Bow down and worship him. Acts also definitely emphasizes that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. In addition to that, it emphasizes your next uh, bullet point there, B. Acts shows that salvation is offered to all men. It's a big deal in the book of Acts. It's offered not only to the Jews, but it's offered to all men. In Acts 8, Philip reaches out to the Ethiopian eunuch and evangelizes him. He gets saved and baptized. In Acts 10, Paul evangelizes, excuse me, Peter. In Acts 10, Peter evangelizes Cornelius, the centurion in Caesarea. He gets baptized and he becomes a born-again believer. In the second half of Acts, we read about how Paul goes on three, some say four, missionary trips outside of Israel into Gentile territory. Acts 17 verse 30 records Paul preaching on Mars Hill in Athens, Greece, when he says the times of ignorance, the, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now... He commands all people everywhere to repent. So the Christian faith, you know, sometimes when you're on a mission trip or you're interacting with other people in Asia, Africa, South America, or Antarctica, okay, maybe there's other continents uh, you, you may have been to, and they just say, well, I'm not a Christian because that's kind of like a westernized religion. We have our own faith, the Buddhism, Hinduism, Shinto, whatever they believe. And I just always tell them, no, 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 you don't understand. Christ is for all. Doesn't matter where you're born. Doesn't matter what your mama taught you, right? What matters is Jesus Christ provides salvation for all. Our culture is no better than their culture, but Christ is better than their God, and we have a responsibility to make sure that people understand. Because of the book of Acts becomes crystal clear, it was already clear to a degree, but Acts makes it abundantly clear that the gospel is available to all men. I love that about the book of Acts. Another purpose to highlight would be C, Acts highlights the work of the Holy Spirit. Come on. I love that, right? In Acts, we see how the Holy Spirit fills and empowers and emboldens ordinary men to do extraordinary things. The same men, again, who fled, who were scared, are now preaching the word of God with power. They had no fear. Miracles were being performed through them at a rate and to a degree that had never been seen before. If Peter's shadow simply fell on somebody, they could be healed. They would take his handkerchief. And this is not, again, exalting the apostles. It's Christ. The Holy Spirit doing the, the work, but it's incredible what's happening. And that's all because these men were filled with the Holy Spirit and received power to do what God called them to do. You need a change in your life? Make sure that you are, as Ephesians 5.18 commands us, being filled with the Holy Spirit every day. Maybe the reason your Christian life stinks right now 
is that you're walking in the flesh and you're not walking in the spirit. And every day God calls us to soak in his word and to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit as he fills us day in and day out so that you can walk a life of victory and a life of joy. And Acts is going to teach us a little bit about how to do that. Don't be scared. It's going to be good. You're going to be blessed. You're going to be encouraged as we learn more about the Holy Spirit. Another purpose of Acts is to show how the New Testament connects the Old Testament with the New Testament. Acts regularly connects the New Testament with key Old Testament prophecies and shows their fulfillment. Like Joel 2, Psalm 2, Psalm 16, Psalm 110, Psalm 118, Isaiah 6, Isaiah 53, Isaiah 66. We see a plethora of encouraging rock-solid connections with Old Testament teaching and New Testament teaching alike. And a big part of this is how E says in your outline, Acts elaborates on key transitions. That's really what's happening in the book of Acts is there's a lot of key transitions like what you ask. I have them listed for you here. Number one, from the old covenant to the new covenant. You have to understand that for the previous 4,000 years from the time of, of Abraham, maybe, maybe at the time of Moses, all the way up to the time of Christ, it was right for followers of God to follow the old covenant, which included not only the moral law of the Ten Commandments, but ceremonial law, civil law, dietary law. And you as a God-following lover and servant of the Creator were to walk as a faithful old covenant man or woman of God. And when Acts comes in, because even in the beginning of the Gospels, they are still following parts of the old covenant. And they began to transition, and Acts shows us how this transition is going to come full circle, where we are now going to abandon the old covenant as one that has served its time and its purpose and had been fulfilled and met its expiration date in Christ. And now as the new covenant comes on the scene, we see the church flourish in incredible ways is that we're moving again from that old covenant to the new covenant. Number two, another transition is from Old Testament prophets to New Testament apostles. That's a big key because a lot of the Jews are hanging on maybe too tightly to Moses, to Isaiah, to Jeremiah, to Ezekiel. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. We love today every one of the Old Testament prophets. But what they needed to understand is these New Testament apostles are speaking with the exact same authority. And that they need to listen to this authority from these New Testament apostles because the emphasis is no longer to be on the Old Testament prophets at this time. The emphasis is now to listen to what Peter is saying. Listen to what Paul is saying. Listen to what these apostles are saying because this is now new revelation coming through these New Testament apostles. So there's a transition going on there. Number three, from Israel to the church. God chose Israel. God selected Abraham out of all the people in the world to become the father of many nations, primarily, first, the nation of Israel. And as he became the father of Judaism or being a Jew or being a Hebrew, that was an important focus, rightly so, for God to teach us all kinds of lessons about 
himself, about his character, about his people, about how they needed to be separate, about how he would be faithful to them through all their ups and downs, and he would have special rules and regulations and blessings for them that they could experience if they were faithful to obey all that he called them to obey. That's the whole Old Testament. And through that Old Testament, there's always that theme, but there's a Redeemer coming who is going to bring salvation by grace. And it's really all about grace in the Old Testament. But some of the Jews got caught up in all of the particulars and forgot about that. So when we get now to the New Testament, it becomes really clear, hey, this gospel, this Messiah, he's not just for the Jews. He's for everybody. For the Jew first, but also for the Greek, right? Romans 1.16. So the idea is now we have this new entity, this new concept, this new man, Ephesians 2 talks about, and that is the church. All believers who are in Christ share the same, uh, the same uh, blessings, the same filling, and the same inheritance as Christians. There's nothing special about being a Jew anymore, ethnically, as there is about being together in Christ. So we'll see a lot of emphasis of that moving from Israel to the church. Number four, another transition from signs and wonders to preaching and teaching. And all I mean by that is, in the early part of the book of Acts, you see a lot more miracles than you see towards the end of the book of Acts. Now, you still have one even in Acts 28 when Paul is on the Isle of Malta and he gets bit by the viper and he doesn't fall and die. So you still see miracles at the end. But I'm just saying, throughout the book of Acts, you're not, you're not left at the ending of the book of Acts with this idea of like, I just want to see more miracles. That's not the heart of the book. Turn again to Acts 28. We read it once. I just want you to see it again because it is exciting to look at the miracles and all the signs and wonders. I'm not downing that at all. We love that. It's good. It's true. It's right. But the point of Acts was never to point to the miracles and the signs. It was to point to Christ. That's the whole point. Let's teach about Christ, which again is why Paul said, and let me go back all the way up to uh, verse 26. So Acts 28, 26, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive for this people's heart has grown dull with their ears. They can barely hear. And with their eyes, they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn. And I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. So again, he's saying, hey, the Jews didn't quite listen like they should have. So now we're taking it to the Gentiles. Verse 28, therefore, let it be known to you, the salvation of God will be sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He, uh, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him. What was he doing? Verse 31, and doing lots of miracles. That's not how the book ends. It says, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So I'm just saying the focus of the book of Acts is, yes, we love the signs. Yes, we love the miracles. Yes, they serve a purpose. And the purpose is to point to the teaching and the doctrine and the gospel of Christ. So that's what Acts helps us do. Starts off with a big bang. And it continues with continuing to refine and teach with greater clarity what the gospel is. All right, number five, fifth transition from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. That's where Acts starts in Jerusalem. 
Christ died, Christ was resurrected, Christ spent 40 days, then he ascended into heaven. He told them to hang out for a while longer, before 10 more days before the coming and the filling of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And so that idea of transition from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth is now seen in Acts 1, 8. So turn with me to Acts 1, 8. We're transitioning to the historical outline of Acts. But first, I want you to see the theme verse, one verse. You know it already. Act, this is the theme of the book of Acts 1, 8, where he says, um, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So that's the theme verse of the book of Acts, again, fulfilling the Great Commission. And so here's this outline, which we will not go through in detail. I'll just show you the big three points of the outline. So that's the theme verse, and the historical outline of Acts is this. Number one, the witness to Jerusalem. So as we look at chapters 1 through 8, the ascension, the day of Pentecost, And all the way up through chapter 8, we'll see a primary geographical focus of the gospel spreading to Jerusalem, where the church began. And the church began to grow and mature there in Acts chapters 1 through 8, the witness to Jerusalem. Then guess what we're going to see? The outline of the book follows the theme of the book. And then we're going to see, number two, the witness to Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 through 12. So in chapter 8, we're going to track with Philip as he heads up and he starts to evangelize the Ethiopian eunuch. And then we're going to see Peter in Caesarea in chapter 10 and then in chapters 18 and 19 going up towards Ephesus. So we're going to begin to see the spreading of the gospel from Jerusalem now, number two, verses chapters 8 through 12 to Judea and Samaria. And then number three, the third major part of the outline would be now we see the witness to the ends of the earth from chapter 13 all the way through uh, chapter 28, where we'll see Paul's first missionary journey, the Jerusalem Council, his uh, second uh, and third missionary journey, Paul's uh, Jerusalem and Caesarean trials, and Paul's journey to Rome. So we, we're going to see how the gospel does indeed spread to the ends of the earth. Well, we have begun this incredible journey together. Remember, lots of information. Hopefully you've taken in just a couple of refreshing gulps so that you can be blessed. And I want you to know that if you're going to travel on this incredible journey with us, then three things need to be true in your life. Number one, you need to be a Christian. If you're not a born-again Christian who has repented of your sins and accepted Christ as your Savior with this desire to follow Him, then I'm inviting you this day to come to a relationship with the living God and to understand that Acts is all about teaching and preaching about Christ who is the Messiah who saves sinners from their sins. There is no other name under heaven by which men can be saved. Acts 4.12. So the idea here today is if you're here and you are not a believer, whether you be a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, we're inviting you to come to Christ today. Don't try to just look at Acts from a literary standpoint, but from a born-again, saved individual. So if you're here and you don't know Christ, after our last song, we'll have people up here who would love to pray with you and lead you into a relationship with Jesus Christ. Second thing, if you want to travel this incredible journey together, you need to be a hungry student of God's Word. 
right? I hope that you're coming to eat, that you come in here hungry, like, what about this? What about that? Let me study this. Let me dig in here. I'm going to dig in the Bible first. Then I'm going to go outside and look at commentaries and other helps. I want to be a hungry student of God's word because Acts is going to rattle your cage a little bit. And that's good for you. That's good for me. Number three, if you want to make the most of this incredible journey together, you need to be a worshiper of the living Christ. That's what God's called us to be. If we're ever going to be a faithful witness to the world, it starts with us first being a worshiper of the living Christ, that you are moved, that you are mesmerized, that you are changed on the inside out to see the beauty of our risen Savior together so that we can take this message faithfully and be a witness to our world. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for the opportunity just to introduce the the book of Acts, Lord. We're just getting into a big picture overview of what this book is all about. We're so thankful, God, that today we could read sections of Acts. We could look at some of the themes and purposes of Acts, that we could be solidified in our understanding of the author of Acts. And then if nothing else, God, that just some piece of truth, some piece of history, some verse that we looked at today would just grab our hearts and remind us that you've called us to do incredible things for you. God, we're with you for this journey. And we're praying that in this time and study of Acts together, that you would transform our hearts, that you would transform our lives, that you would transform this church, that we would love one another, serve one another, and faithfully worship you and be a witness to this world. God, we pray that the Holy Spirit would fill us every moment of every day, as Ephesians 5, 8, 10 says. And we're praying, God, that that would give us such joy, such delight, that we would delight in being zealous for good works, and we would delight in worshiping you with all our hearts. Bless us this week as we want to represent you well, both in worshiping you in our own personal time and being a public witness for you as we represent you here in this world. God, be glorified in our time as we sing even this last song. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.